Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whitney, have you ever had an encounter with a celebrity? You mean besides you? Ha ha. <laughs> Are we talking like before or after we started the podcast? Because we've had a lot of celebrities on the podcast, in my personal estimation. So, you know, we have to, are we, what's, what's our time nitpicking, period? Nitpicking, nitpicking, nitpicking. I'm talking before you and I started doing this show. Did you ever have an encounter with a celebrity and how did you act? Well, if I did have an encounter, those were mostly in New York. Um, I remember smoking a cigarette with Bruce Willis at a benefit for AMFAR, which was the American Foundation for AIDS Research, which my sister used to work for and she was helping organize that benefit and I also remember having dinner with my former editor at at his favorite restaurant and Paul Sorvino was sitting next to us who, which was cool um, I also once had dinner with Willem Dafoe and John Adams uh, after a Russell Banks reading which was you know interesting okay 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 so you've met celebrities and actually yeah. so have I but how did you handle it well, you pretend you do the New York thing where you pretend like they're just some other person that you don't, you don't even recognize them. I, you know, I mean, I said, Bruce Willis Bruce asked me if I was, I was a smoker at the time. He said, can I have a cigarette? And I said, sure. And we went outside and smoked a cigarette. We didn't even talk about moonlighting or anything. No diehard discussion. Oh my God, what a missed opportunity. Um, but anyway, exactly. So our guest for this episode is Abdul Razak Garna, who won the 2021 Nobel Prize for Fiction for Literature. Um, so... How are we going to handle talking to him? Because we've never had a Nobel Prize winner on the show before. Do you think he smokes? Can we, we can, is that a way of breaking the ice? No, I don't know. Maybe he does. But we cannot go outside and smoke with him without mentioning his amazing work, including his newest novel, Afterlives, which came out in the United States this August. You're right, Sugi. And no offense to actors, but to me, being a Nobel Prize winner in literature is really one of the highest honors a person could ever achieve, so we're really lucky to have him here. Abdul Razak Gurna is the 2021 winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature. He's the author of nine previous novels, including Paradise, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, By the Sea, longlisted for the Booker Prize, and a finalist for the LA Times Book Award, and Desertion. Born and raised in Zanzibar, he is a professor emeritus of English and post-colonial literatures at the University of Kent. He uh, lives in Canterbury, England. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. 
We're thrilled to have you with us. Um, so just to set the historical context for afterlives here, German East Africa was colonized by the Germans in 1885, and the Germans controlled a huge amount of territory, over 350,000 square miles, just territory that includes modern-day Rwanda and Burundi and Tanzania. And your novel references the Maji Maji Rebellion of 1904 to 1905, but most of the book happens during battles between British and German forces in the lead-up to World War I and then also during that war. So for listeners who might not be familiar with that history, what was happening in East Africa then? Hmm. Well, what was happening was the, uh, the aftermath of that conference in Berlin, where the European powers, as they like to call themselves, uh, sat down together and uh, uh, drew up maps of the world, so which part of it belonged to them. So they divided up Africa between them, and uh, Germany um, got what they called Deutsch Ostafrika, which is our part of the world. The British got what they called British East Africa, which is now Kenya. And so on. So they all went around doing that. But in reality, they really didn't own that much. So in order to make it work, particularly for the German state, they had to really invade these places. It really had to be a military conquest. And that's the period that uh, I write about in Afterlife. It also seemed like they didn't have that many soldiers there that they needed to get recruit a lot of people to fight for them while they were there. Is that well? That accurate? was also uh, the practice. In fact, you know, there was something really quite important about uh, European colonialism, both in Africa and India, but particularly in Africa, is that they did not want to see European people dying. So they did not want to have um, European soldiers around who could be seen to be actually vulnerable, even to um, a bullet. Um, so uh, in the case of the uh, the that is to say the colonial German army, the, the man appointed to um, carry out the conquest of this part of the world was a man called Colonel Wisdom. And what he did is he went and recruited mercenaries in Alexandria, these were mercenaries who uh, had been used by the British in the conquest of the Mahdi in uh, Sudan, but now they were no longer needed. So there they were, out of work, and he came along and said, okay, come work for me. So he took them and brought them to our part of the world. So the original Shustu was a mercenary force made up of Nubian soldiers who were uh, ex-British soldiers, ex-British mercenaries. Uh, so they had no compunction about whatever it was that their boss wanted them to do. Um, they weren't dealing with people that they knew anything about. Um, and this is the way in which colonial armies worked. You recruit people, you take them to a place that has nothing to do with them, and you make them do all the ugly, ugliness that you, know, you don't want your people to be associated the same was true of the, uh, the Belgian armies in Africa, of course, not League. The same was true of the Portuguese armies. The same was true uh, also of the British army, the King's African Rifles. So they all used African mercenaries. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's so interesting. I'm you thinking... were born... Oh, I'm just... Go ahead, Suki. I'm just thinking as you talk about... I think the probably the first time I saw a character like that depicted in fiction was... Um, in the English patient with the sapper Kip, who is so torn about um, being a part of British forces during World War II. And sort of, yeah, I think that was sort of the first time I had read a depiction like that. And I felt startled, even though those sorts of people had probably been in my own history, that I hadn't seen them on the page. Sure, because the whole idea of the sepoy, the whole idea of the Indian uh defender of the East Indian army is just a mercenary force to suppress other India. This is just a continuation of that uh, method of uh, running uh, or of uh, organizing uh, colonial armies. It's just, it was, because it was so late in the day for Germany, Germany was so deeply militarized the state, in fact, they could not conceive of anything other than just crush, crush, crush. It's not, I don't think, necessarily uh, in the mind of Germans to always do this. It's simply that was a state mentality. And of course, um, you know, you have two important characters in the book who are East African who end up fighting with the Germans. And we're going to talk about them a little bit later in the interview. Um, you were born in Zanzibar in 1948, years after the events described in the book. So what was the political and economic climate like there when you were growing up compared to the world that the characters inhabit in afterlives? Different in some ways, similar in other ways. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to kind of, uh, you know, kind of evoke it as it were. So there were some aspects of it which were still familiar. Uh, the small town, the small trader. Um, my father was one of those. Uh, so I was familiar with that kind of uh, shop smallness and how people uh, live very close together like that. But I was also familiar with the stories of, uh, of the war, uh, both from, uh, I guess, in a kind of personal way, because of family members who had participated in that in one way or another, uh, either as uh, conscripts or volunteers. My uncle volunteered for the KAR for the Second World War. So I was familiar with this ideal uh, joining into colonial armies and wondering, and he was very proud of it. There was a wonderful photograph of him, which my mother, his sister, had on a stand in, in, in a house, you know, wearing his uniform, you know, the hat that it had, you know. Uh, and, but nonetheless, he was a, an extremely intelligent man who actually ended up being the director of education uh, in Zanzibar after many tribulations. Uh, so he wasn't, he wasn't, um, you know, a kind of a, a ragamuffin, whatever. He was somebody who was ambitious. And so, just in some ways, the colonial army actually seemed like a destination for ambitious young people. That was one way in which you uh, associated yourself with the prestige of the conqueror, the prestige of the, of the new, of the modern, of technology, 
otherness of language. Right, and and then some of your characters are attracted to this as well. And and in your in your Nobel in your Nobel Prize acceptance speech, you said, and, and I'm quoting here. Um, we were those of our generation, children of colonialism in a way that our parents were not, and nor were those who came after us, or at least not in the same way. We grew up and were educated in that period of high imperial confidence, at least in our parts of the world, when domination disguised its real self in euphemisms, and we agreed to the subterfuge. And there are some scenes in the book where I just was thinking about that. And I want to talk about that idea of domination disguising itself in subterfuge especially in the context of characters like Ilyas and Hamza who choose to join the German army. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and maybe read a section of the book for us. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to read a section of the book and also to talk about that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I mean, it's a familiar thing. It's a familiar thing. All conquered cultures, if you like, all, all, cult, all conquered societies. The attraction and the prestige associated with the conqueror, the, the opportunities that that opens up. I mean, if you're one of the defeated, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay with that lot? Or are you going to... And then all those lovely uniforms that you can wear um, as a result of being whatever, the authority it gives you in your society and so on. Um, there are all sorts of and the money you get paid to do this work. Uh, I think you, you have to be uh, able to either be self-assured uh, in what you believe, which a lot of people are, of course, a lot of people manage to just hang on and say, I don't want anything to do with it. You have to be self-assured or you have to be not in need or you have to be maybe a little bit older and wiser and say, I don't want anything to do with this. But the schools are open. Bring your children to us. We will teach them. And what we will teach them will actually ultimately teach them to despise themselves unless something else happens. And something else did happen because the a thousand-year life of colonialism did so it was possible for this process to end very quickly. And it's only really through the period of decolonization in the 90s, for me anyway, and for people of my generation, it's only in that period that uh, people were actually able to step back from it and say, hey, watch, watch, we don't want these people anymore. How do we cope with ourselves? And it opened minds. 
even young cougars, about what had been going on. Instead of the, the mollifying stories, that, you know, uh, for a place like ours. In other places, in Kenya, for example, there were no mollifying stories. There was the emergency. Um, and so there were killings and imprisonments and concentration camps. So um, it would have been different there. But for a small place like us, you know, it was kind of possible to be drawn along that, you know, it's all right. Here you are, go to school, learn this, learn that. And I think it was decolonization that actually made it um, possible to say, no, this is no good. We don't want this anymore. Do you want me to read some? Yes, please. It was difficult to tell how long they stood to attention in the late morning sun. A quarter of an hour, maybe. But after some time, Mbasha Haider returned and instructed Abudu to follow him while Hamza remained standing in the exercise of dance. Then it was his turn. And he marched ahead of the Ombasha as instructed up to the open door of the office where he was momentarily blinded by the deep shade. Harain, a voice spoke from within. It was the first time he had heard the officer's voice. And Hamza felt its severity through his seams. He stepped into a large office with two windows at the front and a desk at the end facing the door. There was a chair in front of the desk and another small table set against the wall on which stood a draftsman board. The officer was sitting behind the desk, leaning back in his chair. His face was leaner without his helmet. And there was a wrinkle of the skin on his left upper cheek and temple below the hairline. His eyes were piercing blue. After a long, deliberate silence, the officer spoke in German and the Mbasha translated. The Oberleutnant asked if you want to be signaled. Yes, sir, Hamza said loudly, addressing the air above the officer's head and speaking with as much conviction as he could. He did not know if being a signalman was any safer than being an Askari, but it was not the moment to quibble. The officer spoke again briefly. Why? Yombasha translated. Hamza had not thought of an answer to this question, although he should have done. After a moment's thought, he said, to learn a new skill and to serve the Schutztruppe as well as I can. He glanced quickly at the officer and saw that he smiled. It was Hamza's first sight of the sneer he would come to know well. Can you read? The Ombasha translated again. I can read a little. The officer made an interrogative face, asking him to clarify. Hamza did not know how to add to that. He knew all the letters and with patience could make up words if they were in Kiswahili. He was not sure if that was what the officer wanted to know. 
So he stared above his head and said nothing. The officer spoke in German, speaking slowly, and looking at the Ombasha who waited until he had finished and then translated. The words came out in the newbie's usual mangled style. And because Hamza stood facing the officer, he saw in the edge of his vision that he winced slightly at times, at the Ombasha's excesses. It was said the officer spoke the best Kesohili of all the girls. The Obalutnan say, why you don't learn more to read? Why you don't read everything like he can? Everything you put in front of you, and you don't learn. You have no civilization. That is why you savage. He says you must learn. What word he say? Vesatic. Something like that. You don't know that. Mathematics, the officer said. Yes. Mathematic. You don't know that, you killed me, some dog. The the officer asked, doing without the Ombasha after all. What is the word for mathematics in your language? Do you know what mathematics is? You can't understand anything of the world's learning without mathematics, not music or philosophy let alone the mechanics of signaling. Una Hamza said loudly. You don't even know what mathematics is, do you? We have come here to bring you this mathematics and many other clever things that you would not have without us. This is our civilizing mission, the officer said and then gestured with his left arm towards the window at the boma outside, his lean face and his thin lips creased in a sardonic smile. This is our cunning plot, which only a child could misunderstand. We have come here to civilize the farm. So um, I'm especially thrilled to have you here because I reviewed your last novel, Gravel Heart, for the New York Times when it did came you? out in 2017. I did. Oh, and yes, I, I just loved it. <laughs> I love that book. It was so, so great. I have a lot of family in London, most of them immigrants um, from Sri Lanka, and I had never read a book that reflected, I felt so beautifully, the texture of that that life. And I, I so admired the pacing of the book. It's slow burn, which seems really to be a hallmark of your style. And, and Ilias and, and his younger namesake in Afterlives remind me somewhat of Salim in Gravel Heart. And their situations kind of remind me that migration may require not only separation from family, but the constant decision to return or not to return, which is a question your characters always seem to be asking themselves to find out or not to find out. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the separation and reunification of families in your work and how you think about depicting that in relation to colonialism. Uh, well, colonialism is part of it, of course, because it's what created the habit that uh, uh, makes it seem, you know, other places more desirable than others. Uh, but it's always been, uh, to me, it's always been a question that I have debated constantly, uh, um, what to do. Stay, go, stay, go. Is it best to stay? Is it best to go? Um, 
and, and how people benefit from uh, either of those two experiences. Um, I tried to write about that in diversion, for example, but you know, you always have other things. You can't kind of stick it uh, to a simple idea. Novels are always seductive in that way. You sort of start with an idea and it just leads you in different directions. And so it's not just simply about whether it's right to stay or what is the best thing to do, stay, go, stay, go. But I think it's always a question worth revisiting, um, especially as new generations come on. Is it best for you to stay there and do what you can? Or is it better for you to leave and go and find somewhere else? Because when you do that, there's usually no way back, really, in the end. Uh, so when you do that, when you encourage um, your younger relatives to say, come over here, we'll send you to school or something, then that's it. Quite a lot of the time, that's it. They don't come back, um, which means parents get left behind. Which means people get old, and there's nobody around to be with them, and so on. And also, there's nobody there to do whatever injection of energy and intelligence that requires to allow uh, places. I say this now, but it's always, always been uh, thought that. Uh, has um, concerned me more or less from the moment I arrived in it. So, what have I done? Is this the right thing? That's, you know, you can't answer those questions. What you, this is your life now. Just get on with it. Um, but sure, I admire people who can find a way, like some of them, have say, okay, I'm going back. And I'll do what I, I can. I think one of the things I... I, I appreciate that you don't depict it as linear, right? Your characters seem to go back and forth also. Um, mm. Like Afia is an interesting example. Or, um, yeah, I mean, even, you know, you yourself have gone, quote unquote, home since since winning Several the Nobel times. Prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it but, doesn't seem so like it, a... still, it still means that you actually can't make that. You know, there's something, there's a, there's a, uh, this is the, the bind about migration. You know, you have to wait till you can go back and say, yep, it was worth it. It was worth it. All the misery and pain was worth it. But by then, you've probably got three children, got a mortgage, you've got a job, you've got this. So it's actually not possible to go back, you know, because what can you go back to do when you've got a full life here? Um, and if you're lucky, that is, that's how it happens. If you're not lucky, nothing like that happens. And you continue still struggling. And how can you say, here yeah, I am, I'm back. It was worth it, but I'm worth nothing. So this is also the bind of migration. When you leave, you make an investment in life. Your life. You invest your life. I'm doing this. Whatever misery I'm causing you, I'm doing this because I'm going to go there. I'm going to make something. If you don't make something, you really essentially cannot go back. And by the time you make something, it's too late because you made something there. And, and going back doesn't work. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we want to remind our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of Afterlives, which is out now in the United States. And we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. 
You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>